Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. Today, I'm going to do a retrospective on my 50 years in the profession of psychology. 50 years in the profession of psychology. But first, some news and notes in psychology and medicine. Fish oil claims are not supported by research. Many of us have been eating fish oil. Fish oil is now the third most widely used dietary supplement in the United States after vitamins and minerals, according to a recent report from the National Institute of Health. At least 10% of Americans take fish oil regularly, believing that the omega-3 fatty acids in the supplements will protect their cardiovascular health. But there is one problem. The vast majority of clinical trials involving fish oil have found no evidence that it lowers the risk of heart attack and stroke. This falls into the category of other supplements that we've talked about on this program, such as glucosamine and chondroitin, which have claimed to take away pain from bony interactions, particularly in the joints. No clinical evidence that glucosamine sulfate and chondroitin actually do this. Same for aloe vera for treating burns. There's no clinical evidence that aloe vera actually is, is, uh, aids in the healing process for burns. We have these claims over and over again. They go back hundreds and hundreds of years on various things. And to a certain extent, some of these things work because of the placebo effect. And if they do, more power to us. If we can take a pill or take something and we think it makes us heal and we actually do heal, what matter is it to us whether there are cl there's clinical evidence for it or not? But in this case, there is no scientific evidence, if you believe in science, that fish oil will actually decrease the risk of heart attack and stroke. I get a note here saying, how about real fish? Good question. What about the fat in real fish? Don't know the answer to that. Maybe we can find out in the future. Now, here's one on an upbeat emotion. Yes, an upbeat emotion. Dark moods are bad for your health. Scientists have known for decades that a wide variety of unpleasant emotions, like shame, depression, and anxiety, are linked to greater rates of ills like heart disease, inflammation, cancer, and even premature death. Conversely, positive feelings have been shown to be good for you. Far less is known, however, about the health benefits of specific upbeat moods. Whether contentment might promote good health more robustly than joy or pride. A new study singles out one surprising emotion as a potent medicine, the emotion of awe. And happily, 
awe seems to be much easier to come by than many might expect, even for the busy and stressed out. A recent study indicates that awe, that awe decreases inflammation, and this was done through scientific analysis of blood, it decreases inflammation, and inflammation is tied to poor health. Awe, a sunset, birds in flight, looking at a tree being moved by the wind, looking at the waves in the ocean, watching a baby being born, seeing animals kiss one another, the sense of awe. Awe is being put forth as healthy. And so, bring more awe into your life. It's not going to cost anything. The downside is very little, if any. I don't know of any negative side effects. How can we lose by bringing more awe into our life? So, down on fish oil, up on awe. And now, to our main section, a 50-year retrospective of my life in psychology. What have I found over these 50 years that I can pass on that might be of benefit to your mind, body, and health? Human beings, I find, are gregarious, fun-loving, cooperative species. However, a small percentage of us humans are dangerous predators. And these predators often become leaders who dominate millions and create wars. Two, to maintain one's self-esteem and sanity, it is imperative, I find, to question everything one reads and hears. Everything one reads and hears, especially when it comes from government. Instead of the government working for the people, the government works for a tiny minority of people who buy influence through what I consider to be legal bribery called lobbying. Therefore, the government is not necessarily working for the best interests and the health of the rest of us. The government lies and deceives the people and until the system is changed, the government simply cannot be trusted. What this means is that something happens. Good people, honest people, run for office, and when they get into leadership positions, if they're not predators already, they too often succumb to the system we've created whereby they can be influenced by vast amounts of money. The influence of money and the avaricious drive to what I call fiscal obesity is so great that even the professions of psychiatry and psychology cannot be taken at face value or trusted. That's a sad thing for me to say, but it is my truth. The one most important, the most effective, and free treatment for emotional pain and anxiety turns out to be simple abdominal breathing. Yes, simple as this may sound, maintaining a steady supply of oxygen is the most calming of influences. 
It is therefore in every person's self-interest to master the skill of breathing in all circumstances. This sounds silly, doesn't it? Because we all breathe all the time. But as it turns out, in tense situations, we tighten up our muscles, particularly the stomach muscles, because the stomach does not have bones behind it as a shield. Remember, the chest has the ribs. Legs have these big, long bones. The back have ribs. The head has the cranium. But the stomach is totally exposed. So we, we instinctually tighten up our stomach muscles in tense situations in order to create a muscular shield. And when we tighten up, we cut off our oxygen supply. When we cut off our oxygen supply, this increases our anxiety and our discomfort. And so the one most important tool, the most effective tool I have found in 50 years of work in this profession is abdominal breathing. The most important thing we can do for our mental and physical health is to be proactive in maintaining the highest level of our immune system rather than allowing ourselves to succumb to illness which then requires treatment. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Let's look at the history of psychology. From 1900 to 1950, we were under the influence of the great founder, Sigmund Freud. But keep in mind that Sigmund Freud was a medical doctor who was originally an ophthalmologist. He came from a disease orientation, and so he looked at human psychology from the point of view of psychopathology. Remember one of his books? The Psychopathology of Everyday Life. Everything we did was looked at in terms of whether it was neurotic, psychotic, or pathological in some way. From 1950 to the year 2000, we had an evolution, almost a revolution, led by people such as Abraham Maslow and Carl Rogers. This was called the humanistic psychology movement, which then became the transpersonal psychology movement, which then became the positive psychology movement. If you want to read something on this, take a look at The Transparent Self by my old friend, deceased, Sidney Girard, The Transparent Self. During this 50 years from 1950 to 2000, we focused more on what was positive about us. I personally took the position of watering flowers and letting, letting the, the weeds die of malnutrition. But what about going forward? Going forward, we're going to need an understanding of emotional issues, of emotional aberrations, within the context of the entire culture and the person's personal life. There's a major difference, for example, between a person, let's say one of my patients, who's a rock star and who's been drinking and drugging into oblivion for 20 years until almost everything in that person's life is falling apart and goes and gets help and gets corrected and then still has royalties coming in and then still can go back up on the stage and make a living. There's a difference between that person and a middle-class person who loses their home, loses their family, just like the rock star did. But then, when they get cleaned up, they have nothing to go back to. They're broke. They lost their home. They lost their job. They're not going to be able to go back up on the stage. What are they to do? Hmm. But in order to look 
in order to look carefully at the culture, let's take, let's take a look at a seminal issue. The United States, our country, has been divided from inception between self-interest and humanistic principles. On the one hand, we were the first group of people in 2,000 years to break the chains of the divine right of kings, and we created what we called a democracy. Divine right was a deal between the church and local rulers. The local rulers signed on their people to the church, all of my people will now be under this church, and in return, the local ruler got the imprimatur of the pope. We will protect your position as king of your people. This deal meant that if you disobeyed your king, you were then committing a crime against God, and for that, you were killed. This was called the divine right of kings. What a great deal that was, wasn't it? Some guy out in the middle of nowhere who, was in, who had a whole bunch of people in his mob makes a deal with the church, gets the title of king, and from then on, all his descendants become kings. All his people are under that church, and they've got a great deal going. When our founders declared independence from England, from King George, they were also declaring independence from the Church of England. Therefore, they risked death, every single one of them. But, and here is the big but, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was for, and only for, property-owning white males. This was similar to ancient Greece and ancient Rome, where about one-third of the population were citizens in these early democracies, and everybody else were slaves and non-citizens. Here in the United States, women, Native Americans, and what are referred to as black people were not included. By the way, as an aside, please note the similarity between referring to a person based on their skin color, such as a black person, and calling a person by their diagnosis, such as drug addict and schizophrenic or bipolar. Yeah, it, it, when a person has cancer, we say that person has cancer. When a person has pneumonia, we say that person has pneumonia. We don't say there's a pneumonia walking down the street or there's a cancer walking down the street. But with these other two diagnoses, we say there's a drug addict. We don't say that's a person who is suffering from chemical dependence, we refer to the person as, a, as, a, as their diagnosis, as a, as a drug addict. We refer to the person as being bipolar rather than that's a person suffering from. This is very injurious to those people, just as it's very injurious to refer to, the, to a person based on their skin color. That's a black, that's a yellow. We'll discuss more of this later, how nomenclature, how what we call people is so injurious. But getting back to the conflict between self-interest and humanistic principles and how they play out on the modern stage. There are those who favor social security, social welfare, health care, and education for all citizens. There are others who favor a kind of Darwinian capitalism, whereby the strong rise to the top of the economic ladder and the weak die by the wayside. These folks say that's the way it is. 
the, the, the strong are supposed to move forward and rise to the top, and the weaker are supposed to fall by the wayside, and that's how we evolve. This is a very serious and important argument. There are some of us, myself included, that believe that Darwinian capitalism and certain aspects of organized religion, the aspects which are repressive to natural functioning, are the root causes of most, if not all, of our social problems, including chemical dependence, alcoholism, nicotine addiction, overspending, overgambling, and most painfully, obesity. You see, Darwinian capitalism is exactly like the game of Monopoly. If you play Monopoly with a group of friends for a weekend, at the end of the weekend, one or two players are going to end up with all the money. Any of you who have played Monopoly know that. This is because capital breeds income and capital without additional work. If you get a certain number of the positions on the board, you're going to get all the money on the board. That's how it is. We now live in a country whereby the upper 1% have 42%. The next 19% have 53%. What does that leave the remaining 80%? Less than 5% of the pie. 80% of the population are dividing up less than 5% of the pie. If you sat down at a dinner table this way and had a big long table and had 80% and 20%, and 20% were eating up 95% of the food, and the other 80% had to split up 5% of the food, imagine what that dining would be like. Right now, 1% have nine times as much wealth as 80% of the population. Wow. This means that the 80% are just having to fight over morsels left over by the 20% at the other end of the table. And what we used to call the middle class is virtually no longer. Such a financial system puts 80% of the population in financial jeopardy. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because to be in such financial jeopardy is very harmful to their mental and physical health. Very harmful. It instills fear. How secure can a person feel when they're two or three months away if they were to lose their jobs from being out on the street? That is injurious to mental health and therefore to physical health. Some religions deal with this by teaching the 80% that their rewards will come in heaven, in the next life in heaven. One piece of research done by the prominent pollsters Kelly Yankelevich, Skelly Yankelevich and wife indicates that 53% of the American public believe that when they die, angels will be playing when they arrive in heaven. In other words, we have put forth a belief system that is in, in as much jeopardy as you may be financially to take care of your family and your children things will be better in the hereafter. Interesting that we Americans do believe, 53% of us, that there will be angels. But when we hear about people in other countries 
who are taught that when they go to heaven, there'll be scores of virgins waiting for them, we make fun of them. Here on earth, the situation for many of the 80% is so financially hopeless that they seek refuge in food, drugs, gambling, spending, cigarettes, nicotine, and other forms of refuge. Is it any wonder they seek refuge in these self-defeating behaviors which numb their psyches, numb their psyches to the pain they're living with? And here it's important to cite an important piece of research. Many of us have heard, myself included, and I believed at the time, that if you gave a rat in a cage a choice between food, sex, and cocaine, the rat would consistently choose the cocaine. This study was replicated over and over again, and sure enough, the rat chose the cocaine. Therefore, many of us believed that cocaine was such a powerful reinforcer that it was obviously an extremely dangerous drug that if one experimented with, one would undoubtedly become an addict. However, someone did another kind of experiment. Someone looked at the fact that the rat was choosing the cocaine over food and sex and said, maybe it's something about the cage, the environment that the rat is in that gets them to choose the cocaine over food and sex. Suppose instead of a miserable little cage in a laboratory, we built a beautiful cat environment, a rat environment, I beg your pardon, a rat environment, and it would be a nice, nice housing for a rat. It would be places to play, and there would be grass, and there would be little, or very other, other things that were much more like their natural environment. And so they built an environment like that. And they put the rat in that environment. And they offered the rat food and sex and cocaine. And guess what? The rat chose the food and sex over the cocaine. And so what is being theorized is in the laboratory, in the miserable little jail that the rat lived, of course it'll choose cocaine because the cocaine numbs it out just like food and drugs and nicotine and gambling, cigarettes, etc. are numbing out so many of the 80% of our population who live in jeopardy and fear because of the culture that we've created. But if we were to put these same people in a less fearful environment, they might thrive and they might not be choosing these mind-numbing alternatives. Yes. And what do we do to help these sufferers? What do we do to help the sufferers who are living in laboratory-like rat cages. We offer them psychiatry and psychology to treat them for the illnesses that we ourselves have created. The main difference between psychology 
and psychiatry is that psychiatrists use physical modalities of treatment, such as physical medicine, electroshock, lobotomy, and the modern descendants, these are, of pouring water down people's throats, chaining them to walls, placing them in spinning chairs. Yes, spinning chairs. That was one of the treatments psychiatrists used for a while. People would be put on a, in a chair, strapped to the chair that was on a kind of lazy Susan, and spun around as a way of treating them. Another treatment was placing leeches on them. And then another one that I witnessed as a young psychologist was wrapping people in sailcloth until they couldn't possibly move and then covering them with ice water. These, these are primitive and we look at these as the same way when we, we look back at chaining the mentally ill to the walls of caves. These are primitive and damaging methods. In the future, we're going to look back on electroshock lobotomy and these mind-altering drugs which create chaos in people's minds as primitive and damaging. Unfortunately, the profession of psychiatry is driven by the huge pharmaceutical industry whose job it is to sell drugs legally and driven by the insurance companies who pay psychiatrists more on an hourly basis for prescribing drugs than they can make doing talk therapy. Modern psychiatry, in my opinion, is still in the dark ages, and by going to a psychiatrist, you place yourself at severe risk of being prescribed one or more powerful mind-altering drugs, which will vary in effect from being possibly helpful to creating full-on inner chaos. In his book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, which he talked about on this radio show on two occasions, Robert Whitaker, the prize-winning journalist, informs us that many of the medicines prescribed by psychiatrists actually create mental illness. Psychiatry is a primitive profession. Psychologists and social workers who utilize verbal therapy are less dangerous, but, uh, but they're, quite, they're quite limited in their treatment, for their treatment is labor-intensive and therefore expensive. In addition, how much can we expect, realistically, from one hour per week of treatment when there are 167 other hours in the week, each working to maintain the status quo, a ratio of 167 to 1. It looks pretty difficult. Are we doomed by these obstacles? No, I don't think so. But what we need is for what we call verbal therapy to be, th be taught in grammar school, high school, and college as in courses, the, basic, the basics of, of, of what we call therapy, of good health, can be taught to children in classes on nutrition, exercise, meditation, breathing, and of course, inter- and intrapersonal communication. By teaching mental and physical health, starting in the first grade, we can enhance the opportunities for life, liberty, 
and the pursuit of happiness for all. Unfortunately, instead of offering these basic health education classes to all, what we're still doing in our country is declaring war on its self-created problems. We declare war. For example, we declared war on drugs. We declared war on drugs. But what we really did was declare war on people of color in their skin. Yeah, we did. We declared war on brown and black and yellow people. Instead of celebrating the different colors we humans have, as we would celebrate a beautiful bouquet of flowers for each having a different color, instead of that, we've declared war on people of color, thereby creating untold numbers of casualties to mental and physical illness. And we've declared war in the war on drugs. We've declared war on medical doctors. We have. We've taken away their prescription privileges for many drugs. And we've turned their black, brown, and yellow patients into criminals. Many of us don't know that there was a time when medical doctors prescribed heroin, prescribed cocaine, prescribed marijuana. And they had these drugs and the number of people who took them pretty much under control. But something, something very unfortunate happened. And that is that the prescription privileges were taken away from the doctors in the war on drugs. In fact, if you tune in next week, you're going to hear London author Johan Hari talk about in detail how when we took prescription privileges away from medical doctors, we left only the criminal enterprises with the monopoly of supplying drugs that the medical doctors could no longer su supply. This is critically important to understand. We've got the medical profession taking care of business. We take away their privileges to take care of business, and we give the entire business of all these drugs, heroin, cocaine, marijuana, etc., we give that entire business to a criminal enterprise, thereby creating a worldwide cartel. Whoa. This declared war on medical doctors' prescription privileges turned their patients into criminals overnight. Our prisons are now filled with people of color. They're the direct victims of morally and racially motivated war on people of color that was sanitized by calling it a war on drugs. The man who was in charge of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics from its inception in 1930 until 1962, Harry Anslinger, is quoted in print as saying, these darkies are using marijuana because it makes them feel as good as white people. 
He was appointed as Federal Bureau of Narcotics Chief by his father-in-law, Secretary of the Treasury, Andrew Mellon. He took this phony war on drugs further, much further. When he took away the prescription privileges from the medical doctor from, for certain drugs, he also took away the prescription privileges for other medicines called psychoactive medicines, sometimes referred to as psychedelic medicines. Harry Anslinger got the authority from the United States government to go to the United Nations and strong-arm the countries of the world into taking prescription privileges away from medical doctors all over the world and into suppressing research into psychedelic medicines all over the world at the exact same time. In one swoop, all over the world, the doctors lost their privileges and the criminal enterprises became the only suppliers of these drugs and these medicines. The war on drugs became a war on people. As a result, we've now had 60 years of worldwide suppression into what's called psychedelic medicines. At the very same time, we've had other medicines which are put forth by the pharmaceutical industry and, as I mentioned before, are creating chaos in the minds of men. Let us now move on to what else I've learned in my last 50 years studying psychology. But let me pause before I do that. The telephone number here is 707-937-5103. 707-937-5103. Please call in if you have a question or a comment. I'm moving on to other factors that I've learned these past 50 years are particularly injurious to mental and physical health, lying and hypocrisy by leaders make people crazy and undermine the very fabric of our society which is based on mutual trust. Telling little boys that bad things will happen to them if they masturbate undermines trust and creates guilt and mental illness. Congressmen and ministers passing laws against homosexuals and then picking up men in public toilets and doing sex acts undermines basic trust in leadership. Telling an entire country that we are attacking another country and killing them and sacrificing our own people because this other country has weapons of mass destruction when they don't is a lie of tragic proportions which is injurious to the mental and physical health of our entire nation. Standing up before Congress and taking an oath and swearing that cigarette smoking is not addictive is a lie which has cost the lives of millions while undermining basic trust in leadership. 
shaming a mother for nursing her baby in public as a crime is a crime against nature, for it makes a person feel bad about a natural function. The same holds true for shaming a person because of their sexual preference, their skin color, or their religion. Shaming is a control tactic that has been written about as far back as the Hebrew Torah 5,000 years ago. Shaming can and does drive people to suicide. Conservative and religious individuals and businesses such as caterers, florists, etc., who choose not to sell services to same-sex couples in the name of religious freedom are ostracizing people and undermining their mental health. They're doing so based on their sexual preference. They're telling these people that they're not worthy of services. This is a direct attack on their self-esteem. Racial prejudice against black people has become so deep and pervasive that the black people themselves believe they are lesser people, as witnessed by the prejudice within their own black race based on degree of blackness in their pigmentation, with lighter people looking down on darker. Is this not a crime against humanity? Does this not undermine the health and welfare of millions of people? Let us take a call. How are we doing there? Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hello? Guess we lost him. Well, let's look at some what we can do after hearing so much of what we're doing wrong. Looks like that person is trying to get back with us, Michael. Let's see if we can... Hi, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi, Richard. Hi. Um, I wanted to mention, because uh, you were just talking earlier, there's a great movie that I just saw that's uh, newly released, you know, to stream, and it's called Kill the Messenger. Um, Fantastic movie, and it's all about the true story of uh, the Iran-Contra affair, which I remembered hearing about as a young person, but I never quite understood it because it didn't stay long in the news. But it basically proved that the United States government, of course, um, was having, allowing cocaine, you know, pounds and pounds, tons and tons of cocaine to be shipped into our country from Nicaragua, allowing the drug dealers to ship it in to buy guns, to fund the war for the side that we wanted to win in Nicaragua. And it all came out that, of course, the reporter that broke the story was completely demonized and his life ruined. And, um, but then it, that then it did come out. I, I think it had to do right with Ollie North. And anyway, it explains the whole story. It's, and what they did basically is they pumped all that cocaine that had to be sold to buy the guns to ship back to Nicaragua, it got all pumped into areas like um, South Central LA, you know, all the poorest black neighborhoods. And that was crack, that was the crack cocaine epidemic. That's what created crack cocaine because they had so much of it 
they could sell it for very cheap in the form of crack cocaine to the, um, all those people in those neighborhoods. And that funded that war. It all came out finally. You know, that's, and, and um, some heads fell, of course, not the very top heads. It was Ronald Reagan in charge at that time. But then the Monica Lewinsky-Clinton scandal came along, and it, everybody focused on that. But, I mean, it, it, right there alone, you know, I think some people say, I wonder why, you know, the African-American community is so, gets so upset. You know, I mean, yes, there's p- police brutality. But, you know, it's like enough's enough. They've just been handed the, you know, just purposefully, um, you know, uh, just uh, people have tried, people have purposely tried to kind of exterminate them and use them, and you wonder why there's this, there's so much anger behind it. I mean, there's so much anger from all the past. Tell me the name of the movie again, please. It's called Kill the Messenger. Kill the Messenger. Yes, you will be so angry after you watch it. Well, thank you very much for that call. I'm not looking forward to being uh, so angry, but I am looking forward to uh, taking a look at that movie, Kill the Messenger, uh, as uh, it sounds like it's uh, more validation for what I've been saying during this program, which is the which is that the war on drugs really has been a war on people of color. It's been uh, a war on, on the black people and Hispanic people for their early use of marijuana, it's been a war on yellow people for their early use of opium. Uh, it, has, uh, it has demonized these people as if they are different from the rest of us, and it is definitely racially motivated. Uh, we have another call there, Michael. Let's take it. Hi. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Uh, thank you for speaking the truth. That's uh, the greatest sanity. Um, I just want to say that if you if you hate somebody, then they, then they own you. And uh, um, and these endless crusades is putting everybody in a, a state of PTSD. The whole of society is uh, constantly stressed out by these endless wars. Um, and thank you for uh, please thank you for your work. Thank you for speaking the truth. You're very welcome. It is interesting, isn't it, that we declare war. We declare war on drugs, but it's a war on people. We declare war on poverty, but it's a war on people. And we declare war on countries, and it turns out we lied. When are we going to start declaring peace? Who ever heard of declaring peace openly? When are we going to declare peace on people of color? When are we going to declare peace on people who have different sexual preferences? When do we declare peace on all people? Let's take that call. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hello. Okay, we lost that one. Well... They're they're trying again, Michael, so let's uh, give it another try. Hi there. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Let me turn on the radio here. Okay. Hello. Um, Hello. Um, I I wanted to congratulate you on your work with uh, mental illness and mental health and drugs and social issues, but I sometimes feel like you wind up being a little bit on the 
establishment side with the uh, some of the stuff you come up with in the news and notes section, uh, specifically regarding food supplements. Um, the um, what was the adjective you used to describe uh, psychiatry? Primitive or? Well, that's one of the words I use. Is primitive definitely primitive? Yeah, uh, I I I have the strong impression that um, other fields uh, in in the medical area are similarly primitive, and I think one of them is uh, uh, diet and the relationship between diet and health. And you can see this um, with the there, there's been a fad, a long time, decades long fad. Uh, among uh, many in the medical community, demonizing uh, saturated fat and uh, dietary cholesterol, and uh, but the tide is starting to turn um, on those issues. They've always been basic uh, food elements, and the um, opinion is is definitely shifting. There's been some new work in that area, and I. The thing that struck me this morning was your thing about the fish oil. Um, and I'd like to get the reference from that because it brings up uh, a lot of, that's kind of a big topic, you know, like are they giving up on omega-3s in general? That was the point. I take uh, fish oil. It was recommended me, to me by uh, an MD. And, uh, and I'll be probably talking to him about this, but I was curious. Uh, okay, let look this up. Okay, thank you for the call, and let me respond to that. Um, by the way, it's a point well taken. I may, I may myself get uh, too carried away by uh, and and believe too quickly uh, what I read in the various journals. I try to read as many as I can and put the information together. But uh, your point is well taken. Uh, with regard to the reference, this study on fish oil appeared in the uh, JAMA, the Journal of the American. A medical Association in uh, 2014, and the, um, uh, the author is Andrew Gray, who's an associate professor of medicine at the University of Auckland uh, in New Zealand. Um, so if that helps you, uh, you can, uh, you can uh, take a look at that study. Uh, there was a clinical trial, they say, with 12,000 people. Um, it's hard to know what to believe, you're right, and, and one day... You know, cholesterol is out, and one day cholesterol is in. What have I learned over the 50 years with regard to nutrition? Uh, moderation in the extreme, um, and calories in and calories burned is what affects weight. Just if you get 20 miles to the gallon and, uh, and you have four gallons of gasoline, you're going to go 80, 80 miles, and that's the end of it. You're not going to go 81 you're not going to go 85. Uh, if it takes uh, 1,700 calories per day to maintain my weight, if I eat, take in 1,750 calories, I'm going to gain weight. If I take in 1,650, I'm going to lose. And it hardly matters in that regard how I take in the calories because it has to do at a certain point with fuel. Is the relationship between carbohydrates and fats and proteins important? Most likely it is. Are we still primitive with regard to that? I think we are, but do we know for sure 
that if we need 1,700 calories to maintain, if we eat more than that, we're going to gain. If we eat less than that, we're going to lose. That we know for sure. I've tested that myself over a period of 50 years, and that's how I've maintained my weight, by simply counting calories. It's not so simple, actually. It takes a, a bit of effort. But that's what I can share with you personally. Uh, but thank you for the pull-up on, uh, on the journal articles, and perhaps the information on omega-3s remain to be seen. Let's take that call, too, Michael. Hi, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, am I speaking to Dr. Miller right now? I guess I am, yes. Uh, my comment on um, uh, what happens to society, the family members in it, when they get down and so angry because people end up not helping their own family members and those same people say it's up to the government to help them or it's up to the uh, Ronald Reagans uh, to help them or whomever, but they won't open up their own home or their finances to help the very family member that's dangerously, dangerously in trouble. Thank you very much for that comment. It actually ties in to what I was about to say, which is that in addition to educating people about mental and physical health, as I stated starting in grammar school, therapy, what we call psychotherapy, for the most part can take place as an educational experience in grammar school, junior high school, and high school. I am 100% certain of that. Everything that I've done in the field of psychotherapy over these past 50 years, treating a wide variety of people suffering from everything from chemical dependence to schizophrenia, bipolar, couples conflicts, you name it. Everything that I believe that I've done in my profession that is called psychotherapy can be taught in grammar school, junior high school, and high school as courses to be learned, and they don't have to be under the umbrella of therapy, which then in and of itself creates somewhat of a stigma, because in order to need therapy, you must have something mentally wrong with you. And what else can we do? What else can we do as a culture not to, sus to succumb to mind-numbing behaviors such as drugging, eating, spending, how to achieve a graceful life? Well. Remember the words of Martin Buber who said, all real living is meeting, and that's what our caller was just suggesting. Meeting means communicating with friends, with family, with neighbors, with people you meet in the stores. Human contact is healthy and healing. Human contact cannot be taken away from us. Human contact cannot be prohibited by law. We're not going to have, at least hopefully, a prohibition against human contact. And that may be the one most healing aspect of human behavior of all. Communicating with our fellow men and women, with our family, with our friends, and literally with people in stores and streets as we go about our daily lives. Unquestionably, in my opinion, isolation and alienation are dangerous to health. And contact and communication are healthy. What else? 
Do everything you can to find a way to make a living doing something you enjoy. If you can find something you enjoy and you're fortunate enough you could, to make a living at it, pursue it. Because that's how you're going to spend a great part of your day. And if you can be happy doing that, you're going to have a happy day. I've got a few more things, but there's another call. Should I take it? Let's take it. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Good morning, Dr. Miller. Good morning. The use of the term people of color is unethical. It is just as if you saw the sign colored over a water fountain. It's the same thing. We have to stop using that term, people of color. Thank you. Thank you. I'll do my best not to use it and try to figure out something else. I think that's a great point. That's a great point. We certainly don't talk about people of schizophrenia or people of addiction. What else can we do? What else can we do to maintain and not go numb? We need to stay awake and question everything. Yes, it's hard, but we need to question everything because... The answers really to what we need to know are within us. We come into this world and we go through our world and the answers are inside. They're not outside. That's why all these attempts to take something, be it a drug or to do something, be it gambling, to change inner states, fail. You can't eat your way into feeling good. You can only eat your way into oblivion and numbness. But you can find what you're looking for inside. That's what I've come to believe. Grow a garden. If you don't have space, get together with those neighbors who do have the space and grow food. Growing food is healthy in the doing and it's healthy in the eating and it's a great hedge against inflation. I've mentioned before about the importance of becoming an expert breather. I'm going to be talking about breathing until you don't want to hear about it anymore. But first, we're going to take another call. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Thank you so much, Richard. This is Nick on the Coast. Hi, Nick on the Coast. I appreciate your uh, raising your own awareness and raising our awareness, and it seems like uh, that's kind of one of the cuts to the quick about uh, the whole deal about all this, is just to uh, become aware of, of what's happening. Um, you know, it, it's interesting to, uh, you know, it's like we, we speak of our government with the editorial we uh, you know, we think this, we think that, but I've become so alienated from them and, and their agenda that I really look at it more as a they, that they're the ones that are doing this to us. You know, I think uh, there, there's a certain naivete uh, that uh, there are certain people in the world that actually have evil intentions. Um, it's not all, not all, all of our problems and and snafus occur just to ignorance meeting ignorance or ignorance meeting wisdom. I understand what you mean. That's what I meant in the beginning of the program when I said 95% of us or more are wonderful, gregarious, cooperative, helpful, but there's a small percentage which are downright predators. Right, and they're the ones that uh, tell you that cholesterol is bad for you because they have a chemical they found for cheap that they want to sell to everybody to... Uh, 
make a bunch of money and make everybody sick. You know, it just seems like all of these uh, uh, reports that come out that, uh, you know, they're, they're very, very clever in that they'll, they'll, uh, they'll judge vitamin E in uh, the background of uh, recovery from prostate cancer or something like that. And it's so, so very specific, but the overall impression you get is that, oh, vitamin E is bad or ineffective. And uh, I, I just see this attack on common sense again and again. And until we become aware that we are under attack, we will be more vulnerable. Uh, we have to have this awareness that we are uh, in a soft kill program, that we are under attack. Thank you very much. Thank you for your point. If we're under attack, then we must raise our awareness. We must do everything we can to have a decent life, to see a sunset, to see waves on the ocean, to see animals and pet them, to drink clean water on a regular basis, to practice laughing because it's well documented that laughing is healing. And when I say practice, I mean literally practice going ha 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 ha. I challenge you to try saying the word ha, H-A, 50 times in a row without breaking into laughing. It's almost impossible. I've tried it many times myself. Become an expert breather. I'm going to come back to that again and again. And lastly, remember that the fact that we exist is the biggest gift of all. And everything we can do to maintain a positive attitude of gratitude for that gift is worth maintaining. Gratitude is our attitude because we are here, we are alive, and we're way ahead of all those billions of sperms and eggs that never made it into existence. As the old fishermen say, a rotten day Above the ground is a lot better than a wonderful day below. Thank you very much for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend Mike DeLora. Please tune in again exactly next week. Yes, one week from today, April 7th at 9 o'clock, when I will be interviewing Johan Hari on his fantastic book, Chasing the Scream. He will document for us this so-called war on drugs. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Could a smart building be smart enough to transform the motion